Hi, I'm Marcus Peter Rempel. And I'm Alana Lewandowski. Welcome to The Ferment. Something good is rising. So today we're talking with Leah Costomo. Uh, Leah is the co-founder and now spiritual care coordinator for Arasha Canada. Um, Arasha Canada, we'll get into this more, is a... Uh, very interesting, uh, a strange animal in the world. It's a Christian conservation organization, like like as in nature conservation. And uh, Leah is also the author of a book called Planted, a story of creation, calling, and community, which really tells the story of of Arasha Canada. And it's uh, it's a very very fine read, very very readable, full of stories and anecdotes, and even. Uh, some some lovely drawings that uh, I think Leah did herself. There's no other uh, credit in the book, so I, I think she's she's not only a, a writer but a, a doodler and a very like Alana. I was just struck by the like the groundedness and the wisdom of of Leah when we were when we were mm-hmm. talking with her and the hu- the humility as yes. well, which is it's a it's a beautiful combination when you've when you're in. Uh, position of it's not I wouldn't call her an activist but she's active in a particular direction and when and and you often don't find those two going hand in hand necessarily so it was I think the land does that to people though Um, it gets the ideologies um it get it plants them down so it 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 then becomes you know real real life and you really sense that in her. And real life too. I Like one of the things that's interesting for me and I think will be interesting for our listeners is that uh, Leah is someone who lives in intentional community with other human beings. <laughs> uh, and that that has a way of, uh, of grounding us and, and making us get real. And uh, yeah, she just has a, a, a way of, of holding a, a richness of relationships with authenticity and and integrity, I think that uh, I found really refreshing. So yeah, really happy to share her with our listeners. Um, the song that you're offering as a kind of pairing—it's kind of like good wine, you know. It's like wine and cheese. <laughs> That's what we do here. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I wouldn't want to say which is the cheese <laughs> and which is the which my, is the wine. My song can be a, a good pairing. fermented. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe that metaphor breaks down pretty quickly if we carry it too far. Um, but you've you've chosen the Christ hymn, uh, which has this theme of incarnation, which is a really strong one that comes through in in Leah's work. Uh, and and there's this this line in there about all things holding together, which I have to say, like some of some of your songs have really kind of penetrated pretty deep into my patterns of, of thinking and, and that line about all things holding together, which of course is not your no. line, that's that's from scripture. But I, I find myself, you know, in moments when of anxiety or chaos or worry, I, I find myself sort of repeating in my head, like all things, all things, all things, all things hold together. Uh, yeah, so that's in that song. So what is it? what is it for you about that song in this interview that makes sense as a pairing? Well, it just seemed to me that that was something that Leah, that resonated for her and mm-hmm. quite possibly yeah. influenced her choice 
in the in what she's done with her life and her agency in the world. And so I I thought it would be a great compliment. And also, um, I think anybody who spends time um, in nature and on the land and, and is participating in just bearing witness to watching things grow can really f- sense the cellular level <laughs> of um, just of God's presence in the world. And... And, you know, that, that uh, the reason why it's called the Christ hymn is because it was a hymn um, sung, sung by the early right. church. And, um, and it's found in Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians. So it's, it's, this, it's just the thought of the, the early, early Christians singing that uh, was mm. a really powerful, powerful image for me. And not just an image, but like a sonic experience and then of course what I wanted to have like a modern iteration of it I I knew very quickly when I was trying to work with it that I would have to enlist the poets (laughs) that's always like when in doubt enlist the poets (laughs) so so yeah Mm -hmm. Malcolm Geit, Joel McCarrow, Lucy Shaw and Scott Cairns uh, all contributed a poem and I, I sent them all, each a line from from the hymn. And so it just sort of has this mm. cosmic but very earth earthly imagery. So Beautiful. Enjoy Leah Costamo, awesome lady and Arasha person. <laughs> yeah, just a real there's a lot of nuggets of wisdom to catch here. Leah Costamo, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. So Leah, tell us about the place where you are touching the earth today. Yes, well, um, I live at a place called Kingfisher Farm, uh, which is an intentional community uh, near Vancouver. We are, the property itself was the first Arasha Center, which is a Christian conservation organization so um, we purchased this property from Arasha when Arasha was donated a new property. And it is just a little 10-acre farm. Um, and there's about five acres of farmland and five acres of wetland. And then it goes off into other land, a little forest. And so uh, I touched the earth today as I walked about with my dog this morning uh, off the property into the forest. And uh, I love these months because it's light very early, so we can be up at six and walking. And it is really a it is a place of orientation for me to be in touch with creation first thing. So that's what <clears throat> where I've been this morning. Describe a day in the life of Arasha Kingfisher Farm. Yeah, so um, I'll tell you about Arasha Kingfisher Farm. We all work different places. We're a community that. Um, Not all of us work here, except for our farmer, um, Paul and his wife. So Arasha really looks different depending on what your job is and where you are, because we have projects in three provinces, in BC, Manitoba, and Ontario. So I'll just tell you a bit about ours, um, maybe through a story. So we're located in Surrey, BC, and... Not too long ago, our center director, David Anderson, um, there was a film crew. The um, lead from the film crew was out meeting with him because they were 
shooting a World War II sort of Japanese internment camp film right to the north of us. And Arasha was um, helping facilitate that and getting some um, a little bit of money out of it too for our for our work on that. And and as they were standing there, this school bus drives up. Kids pile out of the school bus. Um, he starts walking them around the property. These six really big guys, fully tattooed out, walk by with um, shovels and pickaxes. <laughs> and uh, the the film crew people are like, "What? What is this place? Like, there's these little kids pulling off the bus, <laughs> and then there's these guys with pickaxes." And then they walk. Um, the property is actually, it's the largest heritage site in Surrey. So it's this old equestrian estate with these beautiful Tudor style buildings. So they're walking across this palatial lawn towards the guest house, which um, sometimes we host retreats there um, and community events. On this day, there was a group of about 30 women, all in saris. Um, doing a little dance <laughs> and so they're like what is this <laughs> and uh, he said well the kids are here on a field trip from school um, doing environmental education these guys with the pickaxes we partner with a addiction recovery program and so this is one of their places of volunteering so they're helping us with some construction projects these women in the saris are from kind of an inner city part of surrey part of a, um, a program we call Farm to Families, which connects people on the margins who don't have access to food, like good food, or even opportunities to be out in creation, connecting them to creation and to community. So they were out on, it was kind of like a field trip for older women. Um, and sometimes we pair those people up with the kids. We did that just last week, which is a wonderful thing. Hmm. And then they look down on the river and you see down there um, some interns who are doing studies on the fish populations in the river and the water quality. Um, and of course, the farmers are out in the field growing food for the CSA. So it's just all these different things are happening. And then you have the support staff. Um, so I'm sorry, my cat just walked in the room. <laughs> if somebody hears a, a cat meowing, that's how I'm touching the earth too, through my cat. Um, so it's quite varied. And at any particular day, you'll have between 30 to 50 people on site active doing things and then add to that the volunteers and interns and kids on field trips. So it's quite a bustling place. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, I I, I have uh, fond memories of, of being there. I think that was, so Paul and Angela, Paul, your farmer, who you've mentioned yes. already is a, Paul and Angela are dear friends of ours. Yes. Um, they're, uh, well, Paul is at least uh, Manitoba born. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we, we, we lend him to you uh, with, with love. <laughs> and um, we are very grateful. <laughs> indeed. Yeah. So, sometimes uh, Paul said to me once, I think, I think you and I are part of the same monastic order, whatever mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whenever Paul and Angela come back from Manitoba, they are deeply encouraged by the kindredness of your of your shared visions. Mm. So yeah, we were visiting them, and and I think that was just in the early days of Brooksdale becoming. It was kind of the the new the, the new adventure. So mm -hmm. it, it is a it is a grand place, and it sounds like you are filling it with all kinds of life. Yeah. Um, and that's wonderful. Um, I was, uh, I was struck by something that you said in your book, Leah, about 
the logic of triage, uh, you know, kind of priorizing, like, well, you know, deal with the the biggest, you know, heaviest bleeding problems, you know, top of top of list always, versus the the mystery of of interconnectivities where even some small works of justice or stewardship um, could be more important than than we know. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you're, you're just like you're, your book is is full of of beautiful stories and you you have some terrific stories that that illustrate that particular pattern i'm thinking of a story for example where you talk about your your husband planting uh seaweed uh, in the ocean <laughs> um i i just wonder if if you would share uh, a story about this this idea of triage versus uh the mystery of interconnectivity mm-hmm. um Probably the most stark story I can think of, this isn't a story about us, but I think it's more a cautionary tale story, and I tell it in my book. And I think it's an important story because it it highlights this, you know, if we mess with one little bit of creation, we're actually, you know, tugging on the thread that is connected to everything else. And it's a story of um, during the Cultural Revolution and Mao decided um, Mao Zedong decided that there was four pests he wanted to get rid of in all of China. <laughs> An ambitious goal. Um, rats, flies, mosquitoes, and sparrows. And so how he decided to get rid of sparrows was he, they, it was, I think, 1957, and they put out this decree of sorts saying that everybody on this one spring day was supposed to go outside and bang pots to scare the sparrows from their nests. And then when they were coming back, they would bang the pot so that they wouldn't land. So basically it left this whole season of eggs unviable. Like they couldn't hatch. And they thought, oh. well, that's good. Now we won't have any sparrows. And the reason why he didn't want sparrows is because he heard that one sparrow or somebody, this was an advisor, I'm sure he didn't do this research, but <clears throat> that one sparrow can eat up to 10 pounds of grain in one year. So they thought our crop yields will be so much better if we didn't have sparrows. Um, so let's just huh. fix this little bit of the natural world. Well, then what happened is the next year, the fields were overrun with locusts, and actually the yields plummeted, and it led to this severe famine in which millions of people died. And it wasn't just the sparrows. Wow. There were some other things that happened. But they hadn't realized that sparrows, actually, they can eat 10 pounds of grain, but if there are locusts around, their preferred diet is actually locusts. So by eliminating the sparrows, <laughs> then you had this locust population boom. And then the locusts, of course, devoured all the crops. So wow. this is it's sort of an inverse story. You know, it's not the happy, like, fix this one thing and then <laughs> everything flourishes. <laughs> um, so our main goal in Arasha is to, is to not tinker too much. I mean, we tinker, but we're trying to restore. And, of course, not bring it back to original because everything has changed over the centuries. So we don't know, you know, a thousand years ago what it looked like, but we know which which species are invasive. So we know which plants to remove and we know which ones to plant and, and things like that. So that's um, kind of our MO when it comes to conservation work. Hmm. So Arasha is uh, this, this kind of odd duck. I don't know if any other <laughs> uh, quite like it, that it's a, particularly Christian uh, environmental conservation group. Uh, and so part of the story you tell is how, how that 
that vocation uh, interacts with a life of faith and a life of prayer. And, and I was, I was really struck. There's, there's some stories of, uh, of petition and of responding to, uh, stirrings of what is discerned to be the Holy Spirit, uh, in the life of Arasha. And, and I think, uh, like for myself, I don't, I don't do those kinds of prayers very often. I think, I think I, I tend personally towards, a uh, a maybe less content oriented, let's say spirituality. That's a little bit more contemplative, a little bit more leaning into silence. And, uh, I, some of it has to do with just not, tr- I, I, I know myself too well and how I, <laughs> I tend to, it's, it's just very easy for me to, uh, insert, you know, the agenda of my own, imagination into my spiritual life if if I let it. And so kind of praying thy will be done and approaching God in, in quiet uh, and not presuming too much to kind of make out the specific message to me in my specific moment. Um, but but there's some things that have happened in, in the Arasha story that, you know, are just quite serendipitous. I'm thinking of a story, for example, of a, a certain fish <laughs> mm. that is discovered um, and, uh, yeah, I just love for you to share some experiences and reflections on, on prayers and, and promptings, uh, in the life of your, your community. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, to say that we, um, in Arasha, we don't have a statement of faith, so nobody signs on to a certain oh, that's interesting. flavor <laughs> yeah. of yeah. Christianity. So we come from quite a spectrum. Um, I would say I, I lean actually myself more to the contemplative um, side of things. And so I am sometimes reticent to put specifics into my prayers. That said, some have been very specific. We had um, two team members, Jessica and Tina, in the early days who worked in the office. And um, they prayed. We, we owed on the first center. We still owed a million dollars. We never paid that off. A long story how that all happened, but they prayed every afternoon. They'd set a little alarm and they'd pray at three in the afternoon. They'd take a break and they'd pray for a million dollars. I mean, I wow. never had the courage to, or would I don't think I would have even thought to do that. Um, and they started doing that before we were donated um, this property called Brooksdale, which is actually a four million dollar property. So if your theology is that God answered that prayer, he answered it times four. <laughs> um, wow. So I appreciate, one thing I really appreciate about Rob DeCotes, who was our um, spiritual mentor and passed away a few years ago, is um, he was a spiritual director and, and he would affirm the faith of others even if it wasn't his experience. So when some of us were having these more charismatic experiences, which wasn't his, hmm. He would say, you know, I affirm that in you. He didn't judge it as not being true. Um, so we've had these experiences of, of most significantly getting Brooksdale donated to us. Um, but then there's other things we've prayed for that we haven't received. Um, I think most notably and probably grievously was the healing of Rom um, Decotes, who um, when we first started the center, um, or we, before when we first started Arasha, way back when we were in North Vancouver, almost 20 years ago, we were praying with him and his wife Ruth on their couch, and he said, well, you guys go down there and start that thing, <laughs> and then I'll come down and I'll start the retreat center part, 
And I remember thinking, oh yeah, that's really going to happen. And it all happened. And he came down and Rob and Ruth moved in and he started running the retreats and this beautiful aspect to our work. And then three mm. years later, he died of cancer. And six mm. weeks after he died, um, the daughter of our center directors, Taya Anderson, who was only 10 years old, passed away from leukemia. And we'd been mm. praying very hard for her. Yeah. So so it's interesting because our faith is pretty, um, you know, Tolkien's words, um, joy and sorrow, sharp as swords. So we've had the joy of these amazing seeming answers to prayer and then these others the sort of sorrow so it's um it's nuanced and yeah so we travel with this kind of dual reality of you know that's when one at least that's where i lean into the contemplative experience the silence of the Mm. mystery of a suffering god with us and the mystery of the suffering god for creation too because I don't think you can yeah. be in environmental work because things are getting worse. I mean, in our little patch, some things are getting better. Like we've restored some habitat and there's more um, sailor suckers, which is an endangered species. And there are some things that are coming back, but then there are other things that are not. There used to be red foxes in our watershed and now there are none. Um, hmm. So if your theology is based on like, we will pray for this and then this will happen and that's how we'll know God is at work. If you, mm. if that was your theology for environmental, um, the hmm. environmental cause, then, then it would be a slog. <laughs> you would be very discouraged. But if God was grieving alongside you, um, with the morning earth, then, then you can keep going because you're doing it in solidarity. Hmm. Leah, Wendell Berry has said that the culpability of Christianity in the destruction of the natural world and the uselessness of Christianity to any effort to correct that destruction are now established cliches of the conservation movement. And then uh, to quote um, a question from your book, isn't it precisely those who believe in God who often do the most damage to the environment? Isn't it the industrialized West, which is full of Christians, that is raping and pillaging the earth for their citizens' own gain, leaving the fish, birds, and innocent humans to suffer in impoverished landscapes? How do you answer answer to that charge? Um, Well, I think Wendell Berry, um, I mean, he's right in noting that the this has become an established cliche. It started probably back in 1967, or uh, yeah, 67, with uh, Lynn White wrote an essay about the ecological crisis and Christianity traces it back, you know, hundreds of years in this development. Um, He also said, interesting, many people quote that essay as this watershed mark for realization that ah oh, let's let's hang this all on christianity but he also said at the end he looks at saint francis and he says actually faith has to be part of the solution too and mm-hmm. so first i would say you know you get a cliche because there's some ring to truth of it it's not like there's some anecdotal evidence at least if not like solid historical evidence so my own experience growing up in, in mostly evangelical churches from about high school on 
creation was definitely um, either not talked about or just a backdrop for like, you know, at Christian camps, like the sunset speaks of God's glory or, <laughs> but nobody talks actually about stewarding creation. So I think it's a legitimate um, complaint against historical Christianity, maybe not historical, um, especially in the Orthodox tradition and others. But um, mm-hmm. but lately, and in the industrialized West, I would say, uh, yeah, and that the church has been slow to pick up the, the call and, and respond to the environmental crisis. Is there, like, is there something about Christianity that that makes it more prone to ecological destruction than some other spiritual traditions? And then, like, besides your sense of a kind of family loyalty, like, are there reasons that you remain specifically Christian in, in the kind of work that, that you're doing for environmental stewardship? Yeah, those are really good questions. I don't know if I'm, I'm super qualified to answer them besides here's my own personal opinion. Um, you know, I think any faith that has a theology of eternity where life goes on beyond currently what we can see is going to be susceptible to mm, a yeah. sort of, it's all going to burn and we're just passing through kind of mentality because life is really hard and there's a lot of suffering for humans, you know, I mean, especially before penicillin, you know, you had family members dying right and left. Um, so you are going to put your sights on the hereafter, which then can be an unfortunate thing for the present (laughs) and your present setting. Mm. Um, -hmm. so I think that perhaps is one of the reasons why people have focused on what's beyond and not what's here and then looked for those kind of passages in scripture to support that view if they are Christians, but I don't think they're there. I mean, they are there a little bit. Like there's the second Peter passage where it's all going to burn. Everything's going to burn up. But that passage is actually speaking more about human like judgment of sin and not judgment. It's a metaphor that the sins are going to burn up in judgment And then if you read Jesus's life, I think this is maybe why I would stay specifically Christian. Because if you look at his life, it is very earthy. Um, There's not a single passage that says, you know, they found Jesus in the corner with the prayer shawl over his head, praying inside. It's always he gets up early in the morning and goes outside and they can never find him because he's on a lakeside or, you know, a mountain top or something. <laughs> and so, and I mean, even his stories are full of creation of like birds and flowers. And, and so I think his, his own life, it would have been wonderful if he had said something like, you know, in the Sermon Mount, you've heard it said, rape and pillage the earth. But I say to you, care for the animals and the birds. <laughs> it would be so wonderful if he had said that. Unfortunately, he did not. But his life bears out this respect and attention. I think, you know, when he said, consider the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. You know, I don't think he would have said that unless he himself, as he was walking around in those early hours of the morning, when people couldn't find him, if he hadn't himself been considering the lilies, like actual real lilies and the birds, actual real birds, I think he found solace in creation. Mm. Um, mm. 
I mean, there's other reasons why I'm Christian. I mean, um, one main reason is it's my tradition. So the family loyalty is there. But I do find I am I am enchanted with Jesus. So, and part of that enchantment is is his physicality and his life on earth and the way he lived it outside. You quote Hosea 4 uh, in your book as a way of of understanding environmental disasters. Uh, I'll just I'll just read uh, a bit from Hosea 4. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this the land mourns, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea are dying. What what does that view of of the world and of human beings and of uh, of let's say judgment of sin what what does that what does that say to you about how we we are to understand uh, the, the environmental crisis of our moment? Um, I think it shows a holistic ecology. You know, ecology is all about the relationships from one thing to another. It's really like who eats who. Who eats whom, I guess, is proper grammar um, in the world. And so so you start with this like lack of love and faithfulness to God and this basically greed. And then it's kind of like the mm. ripple effect, like nothing happens in a vacuum. So if that greed works out in, you know, wanting endless throwaway clothes, you know, that I wear for three months and then go buy something else for $20 or endless single use plastics. Like those things don't just happen in a vacuum, just in my mm. own little sphere. But there are oceans, there are landfills, there are, you know, carbon emissions. That that there's a ripple effect, a knock-on effect, that, that these things are attached um, ecologically to, to the atmosphere, to land, to vulnerable people creating these things. So I think it puts a moral spin. The problem is, you know, we're so removed from the actual impacts, especially in North America. Mm -hmm. I mean, not so much anymore, if, you know, with droughts and forest fires. and But we're still not making the. It's not like you buy that mm -hmm. shirt at H&M and you get in your car and all of a sudden the fire springs up in front of you, the forest fire. You know, the correlation <laughs> isn't so immediate. So we're not struck by it. So this passage is making that correlation and putting it all together in one little succinct passage. But for us, we mm -hmm. have to make that connection. Um, we have to make that leap intellectually like, oh, okay, I see the connection. I see this costs this much carbon and I'm buying so many of these things. And so it takes an intellectual rigor a little bit or honesty or something to, to see that, oh, these things are all connected. And to do that without like then being paralyzed or coming into a place of like immobilized guilt because <laughs> we still have to live somehow, but it's how we live. And I say this as someone who's just like muddling along trying to figure it out myself and has teenage daughters who 
you know, you don't want them in therapy for the rest of their life because you never let them <laughs> have something that all the friends had. It's not such an issue anymore, actually, because they, they are more radical than me. And they're the ones going to the protests. And, you know, my daughter just bought her grad dress at a thrift store for six bucks, <laughs> you know, because she right. doesn't. She's like, why would I? Why would we spend three hundred dollars on this like nylony dress that I'll never wear again? That's so stupid. <laughs> so I'm like, right on. <laughs> Teach me, lead the way. <laughs> All right, half time. This is when we open up the virtual guitar case, pass around the virtual collection plate. If you like what we're doing here, think about throwing some money in. We do this because we love it, but we also love our families. The hours we put into this podcast are hours we owe to them. They freed us up to do this work. Help us give something back. Throw in a 20, throw in a dollar, it's all good. Just click on the Patreon link. You can make a one-time donation, or you can commit to something regular. Even something small but regular makes a big difference. Regular contributions mean a regular gig for this artist and this preacher. It lets us chase the dream and not the dollar. Enough said. Back to the reason you're here and we're here today. So I believe that uh, as, I, as I'm intuiting and observing uh, where we're at and, you know, living in North America, but having uh, exposure to like regenerative farm movements and mm. holistic management and sort of seeing the, uh, what I see as a, like a Christ pattern, Christ mm -hmm. as pattern in, in the world working with what is. I, I, I see Christ in creation and evolution, um, sort of gathering the grassroots uh, as we prepare to hit the rock bottom of the industrial revolution, because I don't think we've hit it mm -hmm. yet. Because, it, uh, like you're saying, that drawing those connections, it's very difficult, I think, to draw a correlation from an item you just purchased to put on your body and where where the dyes come from and the threads and who put it together if if you have a solely urban perspective on, on the world. But I, I see this pattern uh, sort of rerouting us into an actualized incarnational state uh, mm. through calling us home to earth. Because like you said, historically with Christianity, we've been so like built in from, you know, fourth century on. It's been, you know, platonic in the sense that, you know, matter and spirit are separate and spirit is higher and matter is, you know, uh, this misinterpretation of the flesh and all of this. And mm -hmm. so, so in, in your book, you say that the incarnation shows God's commitment to creation. The creator becomes the created in the ultimate act of solidarity. And I really love that um, and see that in, in, in your work, but how do you carry this awareness into how you do life? the agency of, of what you're doing? Mm -hmm. Gosh, that's a big question. I feel like we could talk about this all day. Um, I love Gerard Manley Hopkins. Uh, he wrote a poem. He was a Jesuit priest 
And he actually burned all his poetry when he became a priest. And then his superior, he wrote mostly nature, nature poetry. And then his superior told him, like ordered him as part of his vocation as a Jesuit to write poetry. <laughs> um, so he wrote this <laughs> poem about the earth is charged with the glory of God. And it, he says something mm-hmm. like it lives in the deep down things. And he talks about the thisness of things, like this thing, <laughs> um, which mm-hmm. I think what he was getting at was, and there's, yeah, I'm not, I, personally, I I'm, don't know where I land yet on like the Thomas Keating's, you know, all of creation is the first incarnation. So I, I still hold that all in mystery and my own kind of theology is still kind of open-handed on all that. But I do appreciate Gerard Manley Hopkins that there is this imprint of the divine in everything, in the most humble, humble, humble thing. So so you have that, which is a kind of incarnation. And then you have Jesus, the creator and creation together in one, which is a is a like prototype, I guess, for the rest of us. So for me in my own own life, I mean, it takes Jesus from, I think, an evangelical, um, maybe not theology, but at least in practice, there's this idea of Jesus is God in a bod, you know, like this kind of Superman <laughs> in this bod, <laughs> uh, which is the kind of platonic view, too, that like, if he had a body, it had to look like Superman probably because matter's bad. So let's like beef it up to make it look... Um, <laughs> But for me, I think it's going back to the, I mean, there is the first, the respect for everything, even the humblest thing. And then there is also the, I go back to that, like Jesus considering the lilies. And we use that just to race on to the, like, don't worry about things. Like, you know, God (laughs) takes care of the lilies and they're going to be trampled underfoot. But look, God clothes them in majesty. Forgetting the first part, which was just consider, consider them, like be near them, be out (laughs) around them. And if Jesus was fully incarnated and this lily holds the imprint of the divine also, there is like a communion that is invited there. So I think for me, it's mostly about joy, I guess, um, and being able to travel in this like hard life, hard work with a measure of joy because we're always bumping up against the divine. And I'm reminded also of Wendell Berry's poem about, um, which I used to have memorized, so I'm just trying to recall it, the piece of wild things where, you know, when he says, Mm -hmm. when despair for the world grows in me, I go out. And basically he goes out where the wood drake, where the wood duck rests in his beauty on the water. And so Mm -hmm. it was being in creation. I think it it is, it actually is a play on Jesus's um, consider the lilies and the birds of the air. And mm. Wendell Berry's considering the wood drake. And this is what is not giving him a pie in the sky hope that like, oh, God's going to take care of everything. Like, we don't have to worry. <laughs> we can live however we want because <laughs> the magic divine wand is going to wave over the world and we'll all be saved somehow. But in this moment, I can have hope, not so that I can just rest on my laurels, but so that I can keep moving and doing something proactive to make the kingdom come on earth physically as it is in heaven. So for me, that's how it plays out is more in the kind of spiritual hope, joy, energy to take the next step towards restoration, kingdom coming, doing the right thing. Hmm. 
Uh, Leah, your book, uh, Planted, is uh, it's a story of, uh, I'm trying to remember the subtitle exactly now, it's a story of creation, community, and calling, I think. Mm-hmm. As someone who lives in an intentional community myself, uh, I certainly was yeah, intrigued by what you had to say about, about uh, that aspect of your life. And um, there's a line where you, you talk about, uh, so you're, you're quoting, first of all, I think a, a a monk in a monastery who makes the connection between, you know, if marriage is a is a mirror, then then life and community is living in a house of mirrors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I I had to, I think what I read that I think of moments like my, my family is probably the last one to get up uh, at our farm every day. And there's every every time that I see one of my fellow community members kind of bustling past the windows, uh, doing chores when I'm still like just getting my coffee on i have this like <laughs> this little this little pulse of guilt and shame <laughs> mm-hmm. and so you had this line the trick of doing it semi well is to keep loving and forgiving especially oneself uh in the midst of the grind of everyday life i i really appreciate that was a real wisdom in that i think that uh, resonated for me so just talk to us about life in a house of many mirrors how's how's that going mm-hmm well, maybe I'll speak about um, Kingfisher Farm because that's where I live currently. So there are a number of us that work for Arasha, and we're a bit like a private Arasha, and we still grow our farmer, Paul, who you know lives with us, and he um, grows maybe about a third of the vegetables that are part of the Arasha CSA and market um, here on our farm. We're just six kilometers from the new Arasha Center. Yeah, I'd actually say it's going well. <laughs> People, this is Great. the first question. They're like, how are you guys doing this? They, everybody thinks it's going to fall apart any second. Um, before we started, we we met for six months before we started just to see, can we live together? Do we have enough shared vision? And how will we do this? And one thing we did was we brought in a kind of a, a coach on decision like conflict resolution and vision making. And so she had us come up with a uh, motto for our farm, like that would be our kind of guiding principle when things got hard. And we had to, it was our first kind of farm exercise. We had to come up with this motto together and we landed on expect goodwill. And we haven't Mm. done it yet, but we joke (laughs) about like printing a huge banner and attaching it somehow to the Douglas fir trees and hanging it above our farm. <laughs> um, expect goodwill. And we had to go in that day, in that um, workshop, we had to go around a circle and shake everybody's hand and look in their eyes and say, expect goodwill. And that has really, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but it has carried us because we've been through some hard things, some significant health stuff and some mental health stuff where farm members had to intervene on behalf of other farm members. And so to, another thing we did was we did a whole day Enneagram workshop so that we could understand each other's motivations. So instead of just seeing each other's actions and being annoyed by them, go, oh, this is where this is coming from. This person just takes longer to make decisions because they want to know all the facts. And so I'm not going to get annoyed that they're going so slowly. So it's true though. I, I hear you on the like seeing people out in the gardens. Only two of the people on our farm actually work on the farm as farmers. So nevertheless, some of us deal better with guilt than others. I somehow am able to still sit and 
rest <laughs> while other people are working around me. <laughs> um, right. That's, that is one of those things about living in community, yeah. right? Is like there's always someone else working. I know. Well, and in the summer, I mean, Paul, I got up this morning to walk my dog and it was 6 a.m. and he was already packing up his truck. Yeah, I think he'd already been working out in the field and he was packing up his truck <laughs> to drive to to Arasha. And I know he was out in the garden at like 9.30 last night because our, our duplex that we live in with four other, three other families is like right on the edge of the garden. Like we literally look down on people working. So I've had to get over it because every time I look out the window, Paul's out there for me. <laughs> uh, it's such a good reminder of where my food comes from. It's like right there by the sweat of Paul's brow. I have this carrot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's easier for the easygoing, you know, who are naturally predisposed to be easygoing, which is kind of more my bent, I would say. And then for those who are yeah. maybe type A, and it's been, I'd say, more transformational, but a little bit harder. Mm. But um, my husband would, by his own admission, fall in this category. But he would say it, it's been one of the most transformational things is living in community because anybody can be godly and self-righteous if they're just living alone with their cat or with their family who's all kowtowing to their every desire. But you live with other people who are type A and all of a sudden <laughs> you, you rub up against each other <laughs> and we're all on the same mortgage here. So um, if one of us goes down, we all go down together. So we, we do not have the luxury of not working things out. We have to expect goodwill. Hmm. Leah, how how do you encourage people to care about creation stewardship? Well, first of all, I think start where they are, like their own place. Like do not start globally with climate change because that's <laughs> for, it's not personal. It has to start with the person. And if they're very urban and they don't even really know their place, like what watershed they're in or what plants grow around them. I've done this in a workshop before where I just kind of springboard off of nostalgia. And I have people, actually, we'd kind of do this quiet little almost meditation where people imagine their favorite place when they were children. Like, where did you go mm -hmm. when you were a child? Did you have a favorite spot? And then like, Help them recreate that scene. Like, what did it smell like? What did it look mm -hmm. like? What sounds were there? And you bring them back to this place that's like, oh, yeah, I was, I was kind of enthralled by creation at one point in my life. I mean, now in today's day and age, you might have to go younger and younger <laughs> for people before yeah, they wow. got addicted to screens. Um, but I'm, these people are usually like 40 or above, so they can, they can remember something. And then springboarding off of that, like you still, creation is still waiting for you to care for you. An indigenous leader, I know Terry Blanc says, you know, Christians talk about creation care or caring for creation. Indigenous people talk about hmm. care, creation caring for us. So mm -hmm. where is creation caring for me today? Um, like the wood drake giving me hope that the imprint of the hmm. divine is still here and I can engage in that. So usually then they can make that little step to like, oh, yeah, there's a park or I have a backyard or I have. So it starts, I think, with affection um, for your own place. And then you build from there, like what enlarge your place to watershed level. Where does what is all of the water drain into what little river or stream near you? 
And what does that flow into? In our case, the Salish Sea. And then you start caring about the issues because you care about the place. That makes a lot of mm-hmm. sense to me. Yeah. And why, Leah, do you get campers to lick slugs? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked because I need to somehow get my publisher to take that bit out of my book. <laughs> uh, slugs, at least the North American slugs, they have uh, something in their skin that, that makes your tongue go numb. So it's just a fun little like exercise in like, oh, my for kids like, oh, my tongue is numb. <laughs> but I had somebody write me from, I think, New Zealand or someplace And they said uh, recently, they said, actually, the slugs here in our part of the world have a toxin in their skin. So um, you should not lick slugs in New Zealand. (laughs) So he was like, you better figure out how to take that out of your book. I'm like, oh, you gads. But the, the reason why we do it is just, you know, helping kids get up close and personal with creation. Like, at least in North America, it's not going to hurt you and you're not going to get a disease. <laughs> and, and isn't that interesting? They have this property that makes your tongue go numb. And then hopefully it incites more curiosity not to lick everything, but to at least observe and engage <laughs> the senses because that's the only way you can be present is by seeing, tasting, hearing, touching. And we mostly just see we mostly look around really fast, and if we're in our cars, we're going so fast, we don't really see because we're moving at such a pace that we can't observe. Yeah. So yeah. going slow enough to engage our senses is a way to be present and to foster that, that other question, that foster that affection and love. Tell us about your friendship with Margaret Atwood. How did that happen? Yeah, that's a funny story. Um I had just written my book and I was going to be on this Christian TV show. It's called Context with Lorna Duick. And they, she said uh, to me, like, well, we're going to have you on, but we're looking for an angle. And in the meantime, she wrote me that. And I was like, okay, so stay tuned. <laughs> in the meantime, she met Margaret Atwood in CBC Studios on an elevator. And Margaret is um, very friendly, <laughs> for lack of a better word. So they were in the elevator and... <laughs> She asked Lorna, oh, what do you do? And she said, oh, I'm a, I have this Christian news show. And Margaret had just published Year of the Flood, which has these characters called God's Gardeners, which is kind of this religious green, kind of almost a cult. Oh, well, yeah, it's kind of a cult. <laughs> Anyways, and she said, oh, you should have me on your show because I just wrote this book and it has God's Gardeners in it and your audience would be interested. <laughs> so she was like just this promoting her book kind of thing. So then I get an email right. a couple of days later and it says, you'll be on the show with Margaret Atwood. And I, I just sort of stared at the email for a while. I'm like, is this a joke? I don't understand. And I actually felt sick to my stomach. I was like, I don't want to be on the show with Margaret Atwood. I had that naive, this kind of, you know, I don't know where we got this. Maybe there was that CBC interview like way back in the 80s or something where Margaret was pretty tough. Anyways, she's actually a total marshmallow as far as um, just her care and concern for people. Um, So we were on the show. She asked if I'd like a review of my book. She wrote a review for Sojourners. We asked her to come out um, and speak at a fundraiser we were doing. So she came. She hung out with us for a whole day at our center. So we just kind of became friends. And what struck me was how... um, First of all, how generous she was in her time, because I think she might be the busiest person on the planet. And how at one point we were driving in the car 
and uh, we were in the back seat. Her spouse, Graham, was in the front seat. We were sharing sandwiches, <laughs> and uh, and she said, do you ever get discouraged in all this? And it was such a kind of pastoral question, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, it can be <laughs> discouraging. You know, sometimes you're going backwards instead of forwards. And she was just like, yeah, I would think it would be hard. You know, and then we started talking about other things. And um, and once I was, we were speaking at a Christian camp, my husband and I, and uh, the camp director started getting complaints. And people said it was a family camp. And people saying that they weren't going to come because they wanted to hear about Jesus and not the environment. And we weren't even going to speak on the environment, but they read our bio and saw that we worked for an environmental organization. So people who would go to this camp every single year decided not to go because we were the speakers. So mm -hmm. I happened to be writing Margaret an email about that time. And she wrote back mm -hmm. a whole page, a huge long page. And it was all about um, the Good Samaritan because <laughs> she knows her Bible backwards and forwards because she grew up in uh, United Church School in Ontario. Uh, actually, she was kind of homeschooled for a long time because her dad worked mm. way up in the bush in northern Ontario. Anyways, and she just was like, how can people claim to love their neighbor if they're trashing their neighbor's biosphere? And it was a bit of a rant. But <laughs> um, yeah, but it, she meant it as an encouragement and as a like, here's some ammunition for you, Leah, <laughs> from your own <laughs> camp, <laughs> from your own scripture. Yeah, so she's been very gracious. I think we've done four or five sort of events together. Like she's invited me now to a few, and we've invited her to a few. So it's I'm really humbled, and I really respect her and her. Um, people think she's anti-religion, but she's just anti um anything religion or political stance or you know just basic meanness that damages others people's you know rights to happiness clean air you know freedom mm. so she just doesn't she just sees that if somebody has religion but it's a religion that's motivated them motivating them to do good things for other people or for other places then she's all for it after we, we spoke together at this event in Ottawa, University of Ottawa, and somebody came up to me afterwards, and because she was so compassionate towards Arasha and towards my message, we kept kind of looking at each other and kind of winking at each other during the talk. And people were like, whoa, that is not what I expected. And one person goes, I think Margaret Atwood's a Christian. And I was like, that's so interesting. Just because <laughs> she's sympathetic, you're thinking she's, I said, no, she's a committed agnostic. She just thinks we're doing good things, and she likes that. Right. And yeah. Uh, yeah. and so I appreciate about that about her, that she is who she is. But she lets other people have their own beliefs and applauds their good efforts, no matter where they're coming from. So That's terrific. Great respect for her. Well, I have, I do have a file with questions for for Margaret Atwood. I. I uh... <laughs> She, what, I know she, one of her influences, I think one of her teachers, in fact, at that school that you mentioned was Northrop Fry. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and he has this line about literature as an apocalypse. And uh, considering her kind of hmm. the arc of her career in terms of writing more and more apocalyptic literature, and then 
trying to understand what Northrop Fry was was on about there. I mm-hmm. anyway, if <laughs> if she ever wants to come on the ferment, we'll we'll have her for sure. Okay. Happily, well, happily. In, in that in that if that <laughs> if that elevator conversation ever happens, um, but but along along those. Great, thank you. Um, <laughs> along those lines, there's there's a character in the in the flood trilogy. I think his name is Snowman, and one of his practices is to uh, recount words that are in the process of going extinct from human memory in this kind of post-apocalyptic world that he's he's living in, and and he he pulls out these, which I, I'm sure this is something that Margaret uh, does herself as a as a you know deep deep word nerd he pulls out these words that are un you know unknown to to most of us and and just brings them out as these these jewels throughout the the book and uh so along those lines i would like to ask you i love that you have this in your book in english there's these very interesting group names for different kinds of groups of creatures words words that many of us don't have access to uh and and this is one more kind of work of preservation that you you've done uh in your book so what do you call a group of herons leah a siege of herons a siege (laughs) and goldfinches a charm a charm uh and iguanas a mess of iguanas (laughs) peafowl a muster of peafowl (laughs) starlings a murmuration i think that one we all know actually or lots of people know that one because you watch them. And oh, I I did not know that one. I oh, love it though. Yeah, um, we're kind of over we're overrun by blackbirds more this year than than I can remember at the farm this year. And uh, when I when I read that, I was like, yes, that is what's <laughs> going on here—a murmuration. Okay, uh, vultures, crows, and gorillas. A venue of vultures, a murder of crows, and a whoop of gorillas. <laughs> a whoop. Yeah. <laughs> I and actually, <laughs> this is from a book. I got all these. It's a book called A Murder of Crows. And they list. That's just a little example. I don't have the book, sadly. I got it from the library or someplace. So, um, yeah, this interesting archive of these names that have completely gone out of <laughs> daily parlance but are um, so interesting and so um, accurate, like a charm of goldfinches. Because goldfinches yeah, are yellow and look like little charms. <laughs> Yeah, 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 and the the herons. It made me think of I've I've seen a heron rookery, mm. you know, wh- where they're they're up, you know, in this kind of castle of of tall, tall, often dead trees uh, that makes them inaccessible to other creatures, and, mm-hmm. and so that 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 kind of picture of a siege was like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. very fitting. Yeah, <laughs> Leah, your your book concludes with a quote from. One of my favorite trilogies, The Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Um, Gandalf says this to Pippin in that that beautiful, um, beautifully written scene during the battle for Minas Tirith. Um, the rule of no realm is mine, neither of Gondor nor any other, great or small, but all worthy things that are in peril as the world now stands those are my care, and for my part, I shall not wholly fall of my task, fail, fail of my task, though Gondor should perish. If anything passes through this night that can still grow fair, 
or bear fruit and flower again in days to come, for I also am a steward. How do you uh, apply those beautiful words to your own work in the world? Well, I think I, I go on a little bit after that and I talk about for me, actually, a big theme of the book is is calling and battling despair, actually. <laughs> and I think as the mm-hmm. news gets worse and worse, like the latest UN report saying we have about 11 years um, to really turn things around or we're, we're pretty hooped um, when it comes to climate change. So for me, it's oh, man, I just want to stick my head in the sand and just like freeze like a deer in the headlights. When I, I'm, other people want to fight because of that. I go into freeze mode. Um, so for me, it's it's that admonition to like, you're not going to save the world through your one good act. You might if you elect the right person and they put in the right policies. And you know, like that one good act could be a pretty amazing thing. But the question is, how can I keep going with a measure of hope and a measure of joy in the light of such devastating news. And I think it's it's that attention to if anything can still grow fair. So what is around me right now? What can I pay attention to right now that I can nurture, that I can move forward in some positive action towards? Because really it's our longevity in any good cause is going to come from our conviction that it is the right thing to do, and there's a measure of joy in it. There is so much laughter at Arasha. Like, we are not like, oh, my gosh, it's all so terrible. <laughs> we're telling jokes. We're mm-hmm. laughing. You know, we're living in the present moment of the goodness of, like, human company, of these little seedlings that are coming up, of the latest Salish sucker we found in the river. Like, we're celebrating all those things and doing something practical to preserve and grow food that is local and organic and, you know, cutting down on carbon emissions because of, you know, people don't have to buy food from so far away. So there's practical ways that this is combating these great environmental ills, but, but they're really practical and local and the attention to what is growing fair, both relationships to people and relationships to places around me right now. Hmm. And then that, allows us to move, keep, keep walking in the light of bad news. Hmm. Wow. Well, blessings, Leah, to you and, uh, and to the beloved community at Kingfisher Farm. Thank you. And, uh, and at Arasha. Blessings on your work. We're just uh, really grateful for this conversation and for the, the work and the, and the witness that that you're offering in the world Mm, thank you it's it's so inspiring oh good well it's it is such a community when I talk about me doing this it's really other people doing almost everything and me talking about it (laughs) and cheering them on (laughs) um so I am so grateful to be doing this with other people who are actually carrying the heavy load and I'm just getting to travel with them so and uh, I'm grateful to meet you both and be on this show and for your good work, too. So bless you in that. Thanks. Have a good day. Thank you. You, too. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Everything holds together. Everything. 
stars that pierce the dark like living sparks to secret seeds that open every spring. From spanning galaxies to spinning quarks, everything holds together and coheres, unfolding from the center whence it came. And now, that hidden heart of things appears. The firstborn of creation takes a name. And shall I see the one through whom I am? Shall I behold the one for whom I'm made? The light in light, the flame within the flame, icon to Theo, image of my God. He comes, a little child, to bless my sight, that I might come to him for life and light. When we had invented death, had severed every soul from life, we made of these our bodies sepulchres. And as we wandered, dying dim among the dying multitudes, he acquiesced to be interred in us. And when he had descended thus into our persons and the grave, he broke the limits, opening the grip, he shaped every sepulchre a wound. of principalities and every moment crafted through time, the divine placed wholly in human flesh, the infinite squashed down into finite, like fitting 10,000 angels on the top of a pin, like the entire ocean is poured into a pool, like the wine is running over, like it's bursting at the seams, the Christ, he was bursting at the seams. Anticipating long stretches of nothingness, we plunge south into California on I-5. Prepared to be bored, uninterested in the view and a bit worried that we too may commit monotony. 
But then, over us, clouds contribute their lenticular magnitude to the two-dimensional. Carved by winds into streamlined eagles, or spacecraft, or B-52s. I take sky photos through the windshield, admitting that in spite of anonymity, there is never nothing. Required to obey gravity, we occupy open space with substance. All of us on the skin of the planet created to lift against the Earth's pull, yet sustained entirely. We live out our singularity along with olive and almond trees, oleanders, tarmac, huge trucks, until size becomes irrelevant. Smoke blue coastal range, stem of dry grass, brittle eucalyptus leaf, pebble ground into the ground. Each bear's love's print is held particular within the universe. Even the small, soft moth on the window of the rest area's dingy washroom, unaware of our scrutiny, its russet wings traced with intricacies of grey, owns an intrinsic excellence. We are the ferment. You are too. Thanks for listening. Until next time, breathe consciously and with love. Eat consciously and with love. Tend the creation. Attend the divine. And name the real consciously and with love. Peace and all good.